going on with the life of the church over the weekend. John chapter 21, um, we had a Good Friday service, and we had folks help us do that. Uh, we, we studied really part of the gospel of John, John chapter 20. Saturday, yesterday, we had an Easter egg hunt, and uh, we had over 60 children uh, hunting eggs, and uh, we had a couple of blow-up things out back and, and a bunch of kids. Uh, either we had either we hid or they, I didn't do anything, uh, Diane did this and some helpers, a lot of helpers. Um, I think 600 eggs or 800 eggs. It was a bunch of eggs they hid, and we had a bunch of children. and a lot. Of, so it took a lot of work to do that, so I appreciate all the volunteers making eggs and whatever else and stuffing eggs with candy and all that. This morning we had sunrise service. I think this morning was one of the most beautiful mornings we've had for sunrise. Um, I, I know it was cold, but when we were out in the courtyard, the, bird, the birds were chirping, and, and it just was serene. It was just awesome. And uh, our deacons, our men, and, and yoke fellows cooked breakfast, so we had sunrise at 6.15, and about 6.45, we had a wonderful breakfast. So I want to thank everybody for doing their part. Uh, I, I write notes down when we're singing songs. I, I forgot which song this was. I, I didn't remember exactly when. But it reminded me of, of when Jesus, when, when uh, I'm sorry, when the angel appeared to the women. I'm sorry. When, when the angel told the women, you know, he's not here and all that. But one of the things they said to the ladies, they said, and I don't know if you think about stuff like this. They told, they told them to go tell my, this is Jesus. Go t Jesus the master says, go tell my brothers that, that I'm alive and I will see you in Galilee. And I want you to understand the significance of, of the, the disciples up until that point had been called followers, they had been called disciples, many of them are apostles, but they had never been called his brothers. And that's an intimate phrase that came from Jesus that now because of the death, burial, and resurrection, those that have an intimate relationship with him are now brothers. We are adopted children into the family of God. That's something very profound that the resurrection gives us. Um, your Bible's open to John chapter 21, and I know time is of essence for all of us this morning, and I, I will try to be wise with my time. This morning uh, at sunrise, we introduced ourselves, uh, our group that were here, uh, with I gave them the finger and the hand. And so what I, my point was is... Uh, Thomas, I want you to think about this. Now we're going to look at the next thing after this. But I, I've used it as an illustration. I think I even started the, the, my sermon or sermonette with a finger and a hand. Because if you remember, uh, Doubting Thomas missed the first appearance of the resurrected Christ when he appeared to the disciples in the upper room. And uh, he said, I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of time. He said, and, let, and so they said, you missed him. Jesus was, has been risen from the dead. And he appeared to us. That's what the disciples told Thomas. And Thomas said, and you could say this, all of you could stand up and quote what Thomas said. He said, if I don't see the nail prints in his hands and stick my finger in it or see the, the, the wound in his side and stick my hand in that wound, I will not believe. Eight days later, and of course how Jews count days, that would have been. So Jesus appeared in the upper room the first time on a Sunday, on the same day of resurrection. Eight days later would still be the next Sunday because they count Sunday as day one. So, because it's day till the evening. So it's eight days later, which would have been the next Sunday, which I like to say, 
you miss something if you're not in church on Sunday. So, so Jesus shows up in the upper room eight days later, and now Thomas is with him. And what does Jesus do? He quotes... See, Jesus was in the room. He was around Thomas, but Thomas, because he physically wasn't there, but Jesus was still there. So Jesus knows everything he said, just like he knows now. Jesus physically isn't here, but yes, he is here. He knows everything he said. Uh, matter of fact, the Bible says, For every careless word men shall speak, he shall render account for on the day of judgment. For by, by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Jesus hears. So he, said, he quotes back to, to, to Thomas exactly what Thomas said, but he says to him, Stick your finger here. Stick, stick your hand here. And don't disbelieve, but believe. Now, folks, he's not here for me to stick my finger in my hand. But what he said to Thomas is, is don't disbelieve, but believe. And then he said, you've believed because you have seen. Blessed are those that believe and they have not seen. Folks, that's us. That's been 2,000 years of believers that have been saved by the power of Christ and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Following that encounter, we have John chapter 21. So your Bible's open to John chapter 21. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. And remember, I mentioned to the group this morning, Jesus appeared more. Matter of fact, the angels told them that Jesus will go before you. When he appeared, the angels showed up in Jerusalem, right out at the tomb. If you go with me the next time I go to Jerusalem and we go to the garden tomb, it's right outside the wall, the gate, the walls of Jerusalem. But he tell, the angels tell the disciples and the women that he's going to go before you in Galilee, that he's going to show up in Galilee. That's 78 miles away. That's just an amazing thing. And he did that all the time. You know, I mean, it would take you three days' journey to go there, sometimes four. But in the same day, he'd show up in both places. This is the power of the resurrected body. That's just a side note. But after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples of the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Now, this is after the week or two. This is on into the 40 days of his appearances. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Now, this is, Christ has been alive, let's say, three weeks. Okay? We know he's approved over 40 days. He appeared you know, to many, 500 at one time. By the way, that location was in Galilee. So you think, and you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 15. We, we read that at sunrise. All the appearances of Christ. The res, we call them the resurrection appearances. Well, this is one of them. And uh, so he appears by the Sea of Galilee, and, and all those guys are there. And all of them are fishermen. And so Peter says to them, are you looking at your Bibles? Peter says to them, I, I love this because it sounds like me and you. I am going a fishing. I like that. I am going fishing. They said to him, huh, we'll go with you. Now, that's a leader. But he's leading the wrong way. Okay? Peter's the spokesperson. Okay? They say, hey, we'll go with you. They went out and got into, all, all the Bible's really rich. That's why you study the Bible. They got into not a boat. They got into what? The boat. Now guess whose boat the the boat was? 
it was Peter's boat probably or James and John's boat because they were by trade before they got saved and became a fisher of men. What did they do for a living? They were fishermen. So this, in the Greek text, you don't care about Greek language, but, but there's, there's an article, it's an article in the Greek and it, and it says the boat, which is telling you it's talking a specific fishing boat. You know it's a fishing boat because they all can fit on it. It's not a 16-foot skiff. It's, not a, it's a big fishing boat. If you go to Israel and you go to the Sea of Galilee, you get to get on a boat that's about that same size. And you go into the Sea of Galilee and, and usually they'll have a, a, a guide that he'll cast a net and all this other stuff. You want to, I want you to go to Israel with me. It's the most incredible thing. But anyway... We move on. So it's the boats. That are, so what? So there's a good chance. I'm just saying. I'm not Peter's mind, but from reading this, it, it's almost like Peter, even though he's seen the resurrected Christ, he's heard from Christ. He's just not sure what's going on. So it's almost as if he's on the cusp of bailing out. Have you ever been on the cusp of bailing out? I would dare say there's many of you that's been on the cusp of bailing out over the past year. Uh, it would be shameful if you wrote on the calendar how faithful or faithless we've all been to the Lord using the last year as an excuse. But, but Peter's, and so everybody's with him. And so they get into the boat. But it says, but that night they caught nothing. Listen, they weren't using a hook a fishing line. They weren't using a Zebco 33 and Shakespeare and rods and reels. They were using nets and drag nets, either casting nets or dragging nets. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, and really it reads, you haven't called anything, have you? I'm reading out of ESV. It says, children, do you have any fish? But the implications in the Greek text is Jesus saying, hey, you haven't caught anything, have you? Now, I want you to listen to that. Jesus knew they hadn't already, that they hadn't caught anything. It was Christ's... It wasn't by happenstance that they didn't catch anything. Do you understand what I'm saying? Who was in control of their fishing trip that night? Christ was. And so on shore, when he sees them, there's just such a marvelous picture. He says to them, you haven't caught any fish, have you? Really, that's a statement of how useless what you're doing is. Not that fishing is useless, but them, already Jesus is getting to the point that to leave your call to follow me and to do this other thing is futile. So let me say again to all of us, Christ has called you, he has gifted you, and for you to forsake that call and to do anything else is just futile and wasteful. So, so they, he says, you haven't caught anything, have you? Uh, and of course, uh, they answered him, no. And you can imagine how emphatic that was. So he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat as if, now let's say the boat's eight foot wide, so they're going to walk eight feet, and now they're going to cast the net eight or ten feet from where they've been casting like that makes any difference but it does because they were obeying the Lord Jesus Christ and they cast their net 
And it says the, they cast the net on the right side of the boat. And he says, you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John who wrote this gospel, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. See, John recognized that what is happening now is a miracle. We didn't catch any fish all night. Uh, this man shows up on shore 100 yards away. He can't see, we think. And he says, cast the net on the other side. He and we do. So John realizes this is a miracle. So he tells Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. Now keep reading with me. When Simon Peter heard that it was Jesus, first thing he did is he put his clothes back on. Of course, fishermen would have to strip. He's probably in his underwear. We've got to be honest. That's the way they worked. But he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and then he threw himself into the sea. And John's there. The John that wrote this, the gospel, the, 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 the apostle John who wrote the gospel of John, he's in the boat with him. He didn't say he dove in. He says he threw himself in the water. So it's like Peter was out of control, and he did this a lot. You know, Peter was spontaneous like this. He would say things and do things that were just kind of odd. And so he, John writes that he threw himself into the water. Of course, you know where he's going. He's, he's headed to Jesus. And first thing I think about, he's probably the, he's the one that wanted to go fishing in the first place. Am I right? Am I right? By the way, they're going to catch 153 fish, which is a big deal. It reminds you it's, literal, it's a literal miracle. And they counted the fish because they were fishermen. And they like fishing stories. And there probably were some big whoppers in there. And they got bigger as time went on. But the point would be, those 153 fish, if normal life was part of it, if this was how they're making living, would be a good living, would be a good day's fishing. So Peter throws himself in the water. Well, now the very reason they came was to go fishing. Do you see a great miracle, a great change of heart for Peter? He's the one that wanted to go fishing. Well, if you're going fishing, you want to catch fish. They catch the fish, but he bails out on them. He didn't have to drag them in. You can read the story. So it says... So he just jumps out in the water. It says, and so the other disciples came, verse 8, came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were, they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. And fish laid out on, on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you, that you have just caught. By the way, something else you might be interested in, in uh, it's just so rich, is, is when they got there, there was a fire made and Jesus had made them breakfast, okay? And, uh, but it says a charcoal fire. And you miss this if you don't do a word study. And, and obviously, you give me time to study, so I find out these things or read people that found this. Out. The charcoal fire is the same kind of fire that was burning when Peter denied Jesus. Remember? In the courtyard. And the little damsel said. And they were by a fire. Everybody was cold. And so they were by the fire. And, and the little damsel said to him. You're one of his aren't you? It's that same fire. And, and I was thinking about that. Because usually they would have. a Certain fires have a certain aroma. I always wonder if when Peter got there. And could smell the, 
like if you were smelling cedar burn, whatever, whatever it was, that charcoal, that if that aroma reminded him of the last time I was standing around a fire like this, I denied even knowing who he was. I wonder if that jolted his mind. I wonder if Christ made that fire for that very purpose because the context tells us that he's going to restore him here. But we keep reading. So it says, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish with you that you've called. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. Now he's going to bring, they're already there. So now he brings them on into shore and 153 of them. And all there were so many, the net was not torn. That's another miracle. I think another miracle is, I'm not sure exactly the text, because this is the only commentary on this. But it says Peter went and he brought the other fish in. If Peter did all that by himself, that's another miracle. If he, if he by himself went and hauled in the 153 fish in the net up by himself, that's another miracle, but I'm not saying it is. So he says, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter went abroad, hauled in the full shore and brought, there was 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net went wrong. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. Look what it says. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now keep reading. Very important. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? All of us remember this encounter. How many times did, did Peter deny Jesus? Right? And, and then, then the cock, remember the, Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Three times, and then the cock's going to crow. And so the rooster crowed right after he did it. Well, this is a restoration of that denial, okay? That's what this is, but it's so interesting um, what goes on here. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, so Peter wanted to go fishing, but this is where they ended up. The Lord Jesus had told them where to cast their net. They know it's a miracle. Now they're sitting with Christ. Um, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, folks, it's very important you follow along here because this is where we are. This is, this is human nature. Jesus says to Simon, do you... By the way, and he's calling him Simon. You know, he gave him the new name Peter, but he's calling him Simon because he hadn't been living right. I think that's a great example of that. But anyway... He says to Peter, do you love me? Now, there's three major words for love in the New Testament. The big one, uh, when we say God so loved the world, that word love is the word agape. Okay? You know it. You hear it all the time. And the second most used word in the Greek New Testament for love is phileo, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So it's, words are important. And that's why we believe in inspiration and we believe in translations. But that's another time and another message. But... Every word matters. So he says to Peter, do you love me? And so, so he says, do you agape me? And Peter said, you miss this if you don't study the language. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Of course, this is going to happen three times. But this is what you need to know. And just to make the point. All three times till the end, there's three times, Jesus says, Peter, 
Do you agape me? Do you love me with God's kind of love? When Peter answered, he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I fellow you. What Peter's saying back to Christ is, see, he couldn't say in front of all those disciples that he loved him God's way of loving because he hadn't been loving him like God's kind of love. You with me? You with shake your head? You with me? He couldn't, he's with all the disciples. They had, they had watched him. He's the one that wanted to go fishing. And there's no telling what he had said on the boat. Maybe he's willing to cash it all in. I don't know. But he wasn't able to tell Jesus, yes, I love you with, Christ, with your love, your kind of love. So he didn't use that word. He said, yes, Lord, I love you like a brother. Is basically what he's telling. He's telling the Lord Jesus, you know, this is a confession. I don't think he's proud of it. He's saying, you know I love you like a brother. You know I don't love you like I should love you, but you know, Lord, that I love you like a brother. Well, then make a long story short, when they get to the third one, Jesus kind of takes it up a notch. And he says, Peter, do you even fillet me, phileo me, philos? Do you feel us? Do you even love me like a brother? Do you even love me like a brother? And that's, really, that's when Peter got all bent out of shape. And Jesus said, every time, feed my sheep. Now, folks, this is a great passage of restoration that the resurrected Christ gave to Peter. I would say that most of us in this room, if we were dead honest with ourselves and with everybody who might know us, very few people could stand and say, I love Christ with a substitutionary sacrificial love that he demonstrated. The Bible says love is this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he substituted his life for us. That's what love is. So God's kind of love is a sacrificial, substitutionary, life-laying down kind of love. Most of us would admit we don't have that kind of love for the resurrected Christ we kind of have a brotherly love, and that's how we treat him. We don't treat him like he's king of kings and lord of lords, the resurrected one. We treat him like he's our brother. But he's not our brother. He's our Lord. Remember, um, when, he was, when, the, when the women came to the tomb, uh, <laughs> All these things are profound to me about the resurrection. The, the, uh, the, the women come to the tomb. This is the first, when they first discover the tomb empty. And some accounts say there were two. Some say there was one. Some translations even say there were two men. And others say there were angels. We, okay. And, and they say to the women, and this is an interesting statement to make. Come see where he lay. Come see where he laid, past tense. Folks, every time me or you, any time we think or we get to the point to where we're not obeying and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to, in our minds, go back 2,000 years ago to a little tomb right outside the wall, the gates, the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And remember what that angel said about that tomb. Come see 
where he laid. He, he's not in there. He's not in there. And that same angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why would you show up at a tomb to see the resurrected Christ? Folks, it's time for us to revisit that truth. That tomb is empty. And Jesus is Lord. You know that word Lord's an interesting word. The word Lord, we could also translate that word master. Uh, demands surrender. A master demands surrender. A master demands obedience. Think about these things. This is who Jesus Christ is. Think, uh, the Bible says that, uh, I think six times, uh, you know, we call him, it says the bread of life. Uh, six, yeah, in John's gospel, six times it mentions Christ as the bread of life that we feed off of. Six times it says that the bread of heaven, the, the bread came down from heaven to feed us. Jesus Christ descended so that we might have life. Folks, that's what the resurrection is about. Anyway, I don't have much time, so I want to, I want to tell you about this. I, take your Bibles and flip over to Romans 7 real quick. I'll tell you something I found. I, I haven't seen it in all my whole life. I, I've never read it this way, and it kind of jumped on me, and so I want to share it with you. This is Romans chapter 7. By the way, if you, if you like great resurrection verses, um, look at chapter Romans 6, 5. Go to Romans 6, 5. And then Romans 7, 4. Romans 6, 5 says this. If you don't have a Bible, I'll read it. It says, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, and of course, Paul just, I mean, Paul just got talking to the Romans about baptism. You know, matter of fact, I read some of this last Sunday. Uh, Bear with Christ in the likeness of death, raised to walk in the newness of life. Um, so if we've been united with Him in a death like His, because part of being saved is you understand that when you believe by faith, that's another one of the songs we talked about, we, by faith, we're united with Him by faith. So when you believed in Him, you were considered dying with Him. You understand what the Bible teaches? That somehow, some way, in God's marvelous gift of salvation, the moment of your salvation when you had faith, God connected you to the cross and you died with Christ on the cross, so to speak. So Romans 6, 5 says, for, it has been for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, and you have, by faith, that's what happens. And if you've never believed that and you don't understand that, you've never been saved. You've never understood why Christ came. Because the wages of sin is what? So, you, so when you come to Christ, you realize that without Him, you're going to die in your sin. Somebody's got to pay for sin. And without the substitute, you're going to pay for it. And the wages, this payday, for the wages of sin, that word wage means payday. The wages of sin is death. Christ died in the place of sinners. So he says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So just as, and, and of course I've been resurrected spiritually. But we're talking about even more than that, right? This is part of the physical resurrection. When, when you and I got saved, I mean, I got saved, I was 16. And so at the moment of my salvation, spiritually I was dead. And then I got saved and I was spiritually alive. I was resurrected spiritually. 
But it even goes further than that. This is why Christ was physically raised from the dead. This has everything to do with the stuff we've been talking about for months. We've been talking about prophecy. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and those of us who are alive to remain will be called to meet the Lord in the air, and though we'll be with the Lord forever. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.13. There is going to be a physical resurrection. Folks, everybody lives eternally, and literally everybody lives eternally in some kind of physical form. Some live eternal life in hell, like Jesus said. Some, obviously, others live by faith, live with Him in heaven. But there is a physical resurrection. So all of us that are saved, we that's why Jesus said, to um, Martha, Martha and Mary. We dealt with this last week, uh, John 11. Um, I still have time. He tells Martha, I am, you know, he's fixing to resurrect Lazarus from the tomb. I am the resurrection and the life. Well, I have his life, and spiritually I've been resurrected, but Jesus was talking about something greater than that. There's a then he calls Lazarus physically out of the tomb. Lazarus was already saved, but, there had, he, but he resurrected him physically. Do you understand the significance of the physical resurrection that all of us are destined to have a new body, to have a glorified body? And, and it's going to be likened unto him. The Bible says it's going to be likened unto his body. And by the way, this is the same body that tra traversed 75 miles and would walk through doors and walls. It's, it's another dimension. This is what he's promised. And I, this isn't some pie in the sky thing. This is what we believe because the Bible says so. This is part of the resurrected body. This is he who was the bread of life that came down to feed us. And this is the life that we have. This is, this is part of eternal life. And one day he's going to resurrect us physically from the dead. That's Go to 7.4, Romans 7.4. This is one of those verses. Well, listen to this. When I was reading cross-referencing. I just, matter of fact, I was cross-referencing, I think, one of the words, maybe raised or resurrection. Just, you know, blue-letter Bible. Many of you use that blue-letter Bible, and I put resurrection, and then I put raised, and I looked at all the verses that had those words in it. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So, so now, because Christ fulfilled the law, right? So the entire biblical demands, all the laws, now the dietary laws you know, are not part of it, but all the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, and all the moral laws that God set down, God didn't dispel them, Christ fulfilled them. So when I meet Christ by faith, I, I'm now considered as one that has obeyed the law. So he says... My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That means the law no longer holds sway over you. The punishment of the law. So also that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You, I love this phrase, you now belong to another. That's marriage terminology. You now have been, you no longer live like that, like the old way, you now belong. You've been set free. You now belong to another. We've been married to Christ. And, and the Bible says that in Ephesians 5. We are the bride of Christ. As a matter of fact, there's going to be a celebration in heaven of everybody who's been saved in the church age. I know at least they're going to be there. 
And it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So in part of our salvation, I'm just saying in this great power of resurrection, we're now married to another. We're not in bondage to sin. We're not in love with the world. We've married another. Folks, can I ask you, does your life demonstrate somebody that is devoted to a bridegroom? To a spouse, the groom called Christ, is he, is he Lord? Well, before we close, I've got, well, really, I'm a minute behind. Let me read to you just several verses. I want you to think in your mind, okay, I'm not going to preach on these verses, okay, so I'm going to finish. But I want you to think about how true, how these verses are now true because of the resurrection. Put them in the, think about, okay, Christ is alive. This is why this verse makes sense. Now, just hold on with And I'm going to read through them, and then I'll stop. Um, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be. And resurrected from the dead, you follow him. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you see me, because I live, you will live also. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Think about the day that Christ comes and reigns and he's going to be glorified in everybody that knows him. If the root is holy, so are the branches. That's Romans eleven sixteen. That's a great verse. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If the root's been resurrected from the dead, guess what's going to happen to the branches? That's what that verse means. If the root paid the price for sin, guess what are the blessings to the branches? So if the root is holy, so are the branches. That's Romans eleven sixteen. Acts 9, 4 says, this is Jesus appearing to Paul, and I won't go through the whole thing, but he says, why do you persecute me? Just remember that Paul was persecuting the church. He said he hated the church and what they stood for and and the Christ of the church. So Jesus shows up to him and says, why are you persecuting me? So then we can extrapolate from that 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 the church is the body of Christ. So he tells Paul, at Paul's conversion, why are you persecuting me? Each one will receive his own reward, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. There is a resurrection, and we are going to receive our rewards. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, Revelation 1, 7. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And probably life's greatest question is John eleven twenty six. Do you believe this? Again, let me say, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Though a man die, yet he will live. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? So I have to ask you, do you believe that? Though you die, yet you will live. Little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 
This is why when we pray, we did a little bit of that Friday night, the way the early church prayed, but use confession. You confess our sins before Him. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. Let me read this verse again. My children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Are you a sinner? Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of the household of God. All of this is true because of the resurrection. The last verse, and we'll close. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, now, Paul, this is in Colossians 2. So I'm, I'm saying, let's say that all of you in here, and it's not true, there's somebody that hasn't, but let's say we all have received Christ. So what are we going to do? This is what Paul says to Colossians. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. What does knowing the resurrected Christ demand of me? What does the re knowing the resurrected Christ demand of you? What does the Bible say? Knowing Christ and the power of His resurrection, what does that Bible say it demands of me and you? Obedience. We're supposed to walk like Christ walked. We're supposed to live like Christ lived. Walk as Christ walked. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that He conquered death, hell, and the grave and we believe in the, in the resurrection and we believe in eternal life, we can't help but want to obey Him. Again, Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him. Finally, when Jesus prayed, you can read this in John 17. He prayed, He said, Lord, this is early in John 17. I think it's around verse 4 or 5. He says, Lord, I want, He's talking, talking about, He's praying for the disciples. By the way, when Jesus prayed in John 17, He didn't pray for lost people. He didn't pray for the world. He prayed for the saints. He prayed for the disciples and he prayed for everybody that would believe in him through their word. So he prayed for us when he prayed John 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. Uh, but he prayed. This is what he said. He says, Lord, I want them to know and see. I love this. I want them to know and see the glory that I had with you before the world was ever made. Christ wants us to understand that when He came into this world, he, he just didn't become Jesus. He was the eternal Son. He is the Son of God. He's eternal. And before He ever humbled Himself and became a substitutionary death for sinners, He was the second person of the Godhead. He was eternal. So He says, I pray that they will see the glory, that they will understand the glory that I had with you before time ever was. Well, folks, there's only one way you and I are going to experience that. And that's for us to have met the resurrected Christ in salvation. Have you met the resurrected Christ in salvation?
The ones that did, when you read about it, the resurrection appearances, everybody that met him, they did what he said. If they met the resurrected Christ, you can read them, all his appearances, whatever he said, they did. So let me ask you again. Have you met the resurrected Christ? If so, then we all need to be doing what he says. Amen? Let's stand together for prayer. Thank you for your presence this morning. God's good, amen? He is risen. Isn't that incredible? The tomb is empty. I tell you what, let's have a hymn and I'll, I'll preach again. I'm just kidding. Let's, thank you. Thank you. Let's pray together. Thank you all for being here this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the empty tomb. And God, I, we don't know how. We can't really explain it. How that life, the power of the resurrection, forgiveness of sins, the new birth, how all of that happens to us who were just wicked sinners who bear the image of the first Adam and somehow, some way, through the power of the Spirit, the authority of your word, and the victory that Christ provides, you give us the life of the last Adam. We're transformed into the very image of the Son of God. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for the work of the church. Father, as we leave this place, we go out into a wicked world and we're the light and the salt. I pray that we'll be just that. Thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. See you Wednesday night. God bless. Thank you so much.